0: Hey everybody, I'm Jason, your host of Let Freedom Rain, an equine industry leading podcast that talks to folks from all different walks of life, who share their testimony of adversities and perseverance, and how the horse has helped them through their journey. Stay tuned, we're going to have a great time. Come along for the ride. Now, for those of you who regularly listen to the show, you know it is very important to us to raise the bar of the common level of horsemanship. In doing so, we like to educate and expose our listeners to some of the greatest horsemen in the world and amazing educational opportunities. Now, Jonathan Field was featured in episode 17 of the 2018 season. Jonathan has two amazing clinics coming up in March in California. The first clinic, course one, will be March 9th through 11th, followed by course three, March 16th through the 18th. Now, Jonathan limits his clinics to only a handful of riders, so there's a great chance these courses will fill up quick. If you cannot get into the clinic, however, Jonathan offers a more than reasonable price of $25 a day for spectators and is doing a deal of $60 if you pay for all three days. Now, both clinics will be hosted at Marsh Creek Stables, located in Brentwood, California, at 24670 Marsh Creek Road. I can speak from firsthand experience in telling you that this is an incredible facility. There's both indoor and outdoor riding arenas that will be included in the clinic. Feel free to bring a chair, pad, or blanket for comfort while watching the clinic. Additionally, there will be coffee and food on site available for purchase. Now, Marsh Creek Stables is located only a few minutes from town, which gives you access to additional dining and hotels. All clinic days will start at about 8 a.m. and finish around 5 p.m. Now remember, we're all on horse time, so they will dictate when it's time to turn it in for the night. For additional information on this amazing opportunity, I encourage you to visit JonathanFieldHorsemanship.net or email info at JonathanField.net. I encourage you all to come out and enjoy this amazing opportunity to learn from Jonathan Field. We look forward to seeing you all there, and we're going to have a great time. Now this week on the show, we have Yahel Applebaum coming to us all the way from Israel. Never in a million years starting this podcast did I think I'd be interviewing guests who live 7,400 miles away from the podcast studio. Now, Yahel is quite the horsewoman and goes into some very intimate details of her life and some very personal battles and struggles that she's had along the way. Now, although horsemanship is not very popular in Israel, Yahel is in a position to make a very huge impact in her country's history with horses. It's incredible to hear all the similarities and differences of horsemanship here in the United States versus horsemanship in Israel. Now with the strength, passion, and drive that Yahel demonstrates, success is inevitable for her. I truly enjoyed my time sitting down with Yahel, and I hope you enjoy the show. Now should you find the content of this episode valuable, please share it with a friend. Additionally, your 5-star ratings and reviews on the podcast platform of your choice would mean the world to us. You can find us on both Facebook and Instagram under Let Freedom Reign Podcast. I hate to keep you all waiting any longer. Here is Yahel Applebaum. Yeah, hell. Good morning and welcome to Let Freedom Rain podcast. Hey there. Well, I guess hold on, let me correct myself. It's morning for us here in the United States, but for you in Israel it's the evening. Yep. So I guess good evening from everybody here at Let Freedom Rain for you there in Israel. It's is absolutely incredible. Now, when I first started this show, I would feel pretty successful if one person actually listened to it. Uh, I wasn't terribly confident going into the pat- platform and and I, and I ran it past a few mentors of mine who were very, very supportive of the idea and the concept, so we obviously took a chance on it. And I'll tell you, never in a million years did I think that my podcast would reach an individual 7,000 miles away. If you don't mind maybe telling a little bit of, of the story of how you came across Let Freedom Reign podcast.
1: Yeah, so I I was just trolling around Instagram, and pardon me for my accent, by the way, I have half an Israeli, half Texan accent. I will say it later. <laughs> Beautiful <And> combination. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it is. And So I was trolling around the Instagram and I saw one of uh, Jonas Noble's posts and I saw that he has an episode with you. So I kind of just went back to your account and this is how I got to, to listening to the podcast. And it became one of my favorite things to do when I drive to all sorts of clinics or lessons that I have all around the country. And Israel is a pretty small country. It takes like five hours to drive all the way across Israel. And so every time I have an hour drive, I just listen to the podcast and just get inspired.
0: That's awesome. And that's exactly what the show was intended for, right? If you're cleaning stalls or traveling, right? Or in between events or shows or downtime, you know, just kind of sit and throw the show on and, and if an individual can provide a little insight or a little inspiration or a little education, that's that's what it was, what it's been all about since day one. So, it's incredible for me. I'm extremely humbled to know that I at least have one fan in Israel. Hopefully, and <laughs> hopefully we can get the the following to grow. You know, with every show.
1: Yeah, hopefully I, I'll get my students to learn English better. Perfect. With that show. <laughs>
0: perfect. Perfect. So yeah. let's let's talk a little bit about. Um, we'll get into your story and your history, but before we get too deep into it, I want to kind of talk about the differences you've trained in both the United States and in Israel in horsemanship. Let's talk culturally, mm-hmm. kind of what are the differences? I mean, is the Western and, and equine industries a, a flourishing industry in Israel, or how, how does it go there for you?
1: Oh, well, so you, it's really difficult to say that the equine industry and the horse industry is... Uh, you know, a multi multi million dollar branch anywhere in the world. Because mostly it's about working with horses and doing something that you love and making money out of it is not the biggest thing about working with horses. But due to many regulations and rules that we have here in Israel, it's a bit more difficult because you can't buy your own property and just do whatever you want with it. You gotta have permits. So Basically, many ranches can't afford to have uh, an indoor. So in the winter, we're kind of stuck. We're just uh, juggling around the uh, sunny days or the rainy days and trying to get as much work done as we can. So it is kind of difficult, and there's not a lot of ranches that have indoors. So most of the shows are only during spring and summer. And because it's a small country that yeah. The horse industry is really narrow, and it's just trying... Nowadays, it is getting bigger. I'm trying to translate everything that I have in mind from Hebrew to <laughs> English, so it might take me a second.
0: I'll tell you, we appreciate that translation.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I can try and say it in Hebrew, but it's it so weird.
0: That might limit so, the number of listeners to this episode just by a few.
1: Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so we have... Re- we have a big problem because nowadays we're a lot of trainers on a very small branch and a very small industry. So everybody's kind of struggling to make money and find their own niche in this this industry. And the shows that we have in the Western side are all around shows like Trail Class, Western Pleasure, and Hunted Equitation, and everything like that, and there are only two organizations for the whole country. So you have the ILQHA, which is the Israel Quarter Horse Association, that that has uh, all-around shows, and you have the IEF, which is the Israeli Christian Federation, and this is the bigger one. And in the IEF, we also have reining, which is the biggest branch in Israel. Everybody does reining, or Get from doing reining to doing one thing or end up doing reining. So this is the biggest field of uh, interest. And then we have cutting, which is kind, kind of the smallest. But right now, we also started two years ago. We started doing extreme cowboy. And this is what I've been doing for the past two years. And for me, it's been the best opportunity to showcase my horsemanship and Kind of encourage more people to find better communication with the horses, because in order to do the obstacle course and get your horse to work with you to some maybe scary or difficult or very fast transitions, you got to you got to have co- good communication and good basics. And you have also the English uh, English riding or equestrian, as it's, it's called at show jumping and dressage. And this is a whole a whole different community. So you have the Western side and the English side. And I came across the different branches in the States, you know, the reigning and the cow horse and everything. And it's everyone is a whole different like every industry or every field of writing or showing would be a whole different community. And here in Israel, it's not like that. Everybody knows everybody. And the biggest difference that I came across between Israel and the U.S. is that you don't just have horses or own horses and you go riding or grow up in a ranch. We start riding as an after-school activity.
0: So it's almost an extracurricular thing, yeah.
1: Yeah, so if your parents want you to go to soccer, you know, soccer practice, mm-hmm. then you have horse riding as well. Oh, no kid! And this is how most kids and teenagers get to horse riding. So I've been instructing for about seven years, Western riding, and I'm a therapeutic riding instructor for about five years.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And most of us, no matter what you do or where you come from, you end up teaching because this is the Biggest field of industry in the horse business in Israel. Yeah, it's the most lucrative. If you lucrative. want to make money, you have gotta keep Yeah,
2: yeah, that There's makes not sense. not
1: a lot of non-pros. Yeah, no, not a lot of non-pros or people that would just um, go pay someone to train the horses.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, and if they will, they will need lessons. So we're kind of we're kind of doing everything, no matter who you are, even. One of the biggest things in Israel, he teaches kids because you you have to do that.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's how, how you can be successful, or it's the only way you can be successful, huh?
1: Yeah, because if you want people to own horses and you want to train them, this is the way to get to these people. Interesting um, horse business in Israel. Now it is starting to increase, and you know we have more awareness, and people want to. Um, own horses and be a part of it, and there's a whole whole big scene of you know Tennessee walking horses and Peruvian pasoos. This is like the biggest scene now in Israel. It's a trend. Everybody needs a Tennessee walking horse and they <laughs> you know go riding every Saturday. I yeah. just look at them and I'm like, wow, you want to go so fast yeah. all the you know all the good views.
0: I'm good with my quarter so. horse.
1: Yeah, I'll stay with my old quarter horse and just go chasing cows or something. The biggest difference is that tradition. We don't have the buckaroos or rockers and cowboys as you have it in the U.S. Rodeos are not allowed. Oh, really? We can't rope cows. We don't rope cows. We rope the helomatic. This is as close (laughs) as roping as we get because, uh, yeah, once we did... Try to do a loping show, and the um, um, Anonymous and and all other vegan protesters came and made a a big scene about it. And they might be right. I'm not getting... I'm not going to argue with anyone. They're entirely of their own opinion, but it's too much of a risk to do that here in Israel because of the insurance, because there's not many people that would do it, so it doesn't... um, it's not worth the while to
2: yeah, yeah. get
1: the cows and get the horses. So we just practice the dummy, and every once in a while, maybe once a year, there's one ranch that would do real roping on steers, but really it's not it's not common here. And rodeos, we don't need to talk about it, none. I went to my first rodeo two years ago when I was in Texas, and it was like the fourth work. You know, Sunday afternoon rodeo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I was like such a tourist, but it was the first time I've seen it, and I was so excited. And um we don't have rained cowboys. We don't have barrel racing, so it's basically those four um, fields in Western riding, reining, all around cutting and extreme cowboy, and. In order to get people to compete, you got to teach. So it's an ongoing circle of teach, compete, and go back and forth, back and forth, until you get to where you want to be and get enough students.
0: It's a lot of work on the individuals participating in the industry. Now, would you say, Yeah. based on the amount of work and the teachings and stuff, do you think horsemanship in this industry, do you think it's growing in Israel?
1: I think it is growing. I think it is. I, I surely hope it is. I think the awareness is growing because the whole new generation of people that are taking over the field of Western riding, especially the ones that are now showing in the extreme cowboy division are are true horsemen. And I might not agree with all of them or, you know, be friends with all of them, but They are doing something that, in my eyes, is amazing because they're allowing more people to experience horsemanship as it is in the U.S. And we don't have clinics here, not a lot of them, maybe once in a while, but you kind of get to a point where you've seen all you can see in Israel. Yeah. So it is pretty difficult to to make it economic and actually profitable. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think it is growing. I, I want to hope so. And I think I know that the instruction side is growing because now there are students who do courses and certify people that might may have never been around the horse to be a therapy riding instructor. And you can guess what's my opinion about it. but Yeah. You know, I can I can I can't say anything. There will be some great therapists and some great instructors but there's not enough awareness of how to work with horses. At least not in my opinion. And I I find it very frustrating to see people that are really good with kids and really want to do better, but they don't have the the option to because it is so hard to find a good job that will be like said profitable and find someone that, that really wants to teach.
0: I think here in the United States a lot of the we have a lot of the same struggles. It might be on a little bit bigger scale, but I mean heck mm-hmm. everybody that I know that's in the Western industry professionally, they mm-hmm. have a few different avenues of income. There's always that constant battle of of urban city development and and preservation of the rural community. Mm-hmm. Uh we do have a lot of the red tape mm-hmm. and administrative process, right, when you're trying to develop a property and put, you know, different pins or arenas on it. So mm-hmm. we do have the same struggles and it's probably uh it's just just on a larger scale okay. here in the United States, I would say.
1: Um it is very similar, but um, most of you will be able to get to get to build your own ranch or some sort of thing, but here it's a lot more difficult. Yeah, because you don't get permits, and if you do get permits, it's super expensive. We have um, taxes that I know that you don't pay. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to pay like what you make in a month is what you pay for owning the ranch. Oh, and the insurance and yeah yeah the rules are a lot different maybe because of tradition by the way I think it's a big part of it being a cowboy and working horses is part of the of the American tradition and here it's not it is something that had a really bad name like the people who worked horses were only super rich and they worked with Arabian horses
2: mm-hmm.
1: or they're like those bad cowboys that have some cattle or something. That's what I know about the old days and from previous generations. So making the horse business real shiny and appealing to people from the outside is difficult. But having such big um, influence through instruction and therapeutic riding, which is living in Israel, you have to have health insurance. So you have um, a few different groups and you get insured from the miniature board to kill your dad. And they will help parents. They will help them with um, so, so, some sort of discounts or paybacks for what they pay to the ranches that their kids are at. So it's pretty helpful because...
0: as I am saying, I know a lot of the therapeutic writing who Programs out here in the states. I mean, the lion's share of them are nonprofits, right? So they're responsible for their own funding and making sure they they abide with all the laws of running a nonprofit, and oftentimes require large efforts in fundraising to to sustain programs and to bring bring other people to exposure. And it can be challenging. It's it's almost like a never-ending cycle, right? Of constantly fundraising and putting it back into the program, and then fundraising more, and then trying to grow a little bit more. So. It can be a daunting task, so it's an interesting approach to hear that medical insurance companies in Israel are actually covering and reimbursing some of the costs of equine therapy there.
1: Yeah, so they are, and it is amazing in my eyes because that way any kid from the age of four, I seriously had students that are four, and to the age of 18 where you go off the social service system, then... You have your lessons subsidized, yeah, I think I said it right. That's correct, so they help parents with that, and a lot of groups um you might find um kids and teenagers at risk at risk youth, mm-hmm. so they will have the social services provide them with some sort of some sort of a program and some of them. We'll end up doing therapeutic writing as groups or coming from boarding schools. And I had a chance to work with many of them. This is one of the most amazing things. I think we'll get to that later um, if we talk about the whole where I come from, instructing and everything. And I know the struggle is everywhere. Like, everybody's struggling to make money, especially when you work in the animal industry, such as horse training and showing and teaching no matter where you are in the world okay so we don't we can't cry about that but the biggest difference is tradition we don't have anything to lean on we're trying to build it now yeah. this generation and everything that's going on in the past couple of years um will help build a new tradition in Israel and expose more and more people and more and more trainers or young trainers that are now you know just out of the army are going to the U.S. To, to ride with big names and then come back to Israel and, you know, apply, apply it on their own horses or something like that, just like I did. Even just three months or maybe two years, you know, the visa is a problem as well. But yeah. we are trying and we are working hard and I'm trying to not make Israel sound so bad because we have some great horsemen here. But it's so hard and so difficult to to live only out of horsemanship and there are not a lot of people that came from the tradition of working with horses. This is something that a lot of people don't understand and don't realize. Ray Hunt and Buck Ben, most of the people here won't know it. Won't know them. Yeah. So it's it's our, and I'm saying Ray Hunt and Buck because they were the big names that I've heard of, you know, mm-hmm. when I was younger. And But I'm talking now, they will know who André Fapani and Tom McCutcheon and John Florida, you know the big names in the ring, and Clinton Anderson. But you got to be a real big name for people to talk about you here. So when you come to the natural horsemanship side, such as Chris Cox, which by the way was one of the first horsemans that I've ever watched on YouTube. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. There's a long story with how I got to horsemanship.
0: Uh, we're gonna get we're gonna cover it here in a little bit, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, we're gonna get there, yeah. So all of these names, they're not you won't hear about them a lot here. You will hear about the rating and the cutting and you know, all the big shot trainers. But true horsemanship and cult starting and doing clinics and everything that's around training and around the Chopin, it is not as popular as I would would have liked it to be
2: mm-hmm.
0: you're you're in a very impactful spot in the history of an industry for your country. I mean and, and maybe yeah. this is just my fantasy land hopeful approach that I try to take to a lot of things, but I mean, I understand <laughs> that that horsemanship doesn't have the popularity there. There's quite a few hurdles culturally. Uh, in Israel. But it, it sounds like you guys are gaining ground. It sounds like you, the right people are in place to start working hard. And, and you have the ability to change your country's approach towards horses. I mean, it's yep. an incredible opportunity. And absolutely not is it just going to be easy and given to you, right? It's going to take a lot of work and a lot of tenacity and a lot of persistence on your part. But I mean, you get enough of the, the right minds together and take take the the correct approach. Yeah. You, you you have the potential to change your industries. Excuse me, you have the potential to change your country's view on an entire industry. I mean, it's powerful.
1: Yes, and this is, this is the best thing with what's going on right now. And like I said, I think the extreme, the extreme cow coming into Israel is one of the best things that has ever happened here because. It really allowed people to challenge themselves and push themselves outside the box. And you don't need a big, fancy quarter horse to do that. And sorry, Craig Cameron, but we don't. We use local horses. <laughs> <laughs> half Arabian, half, I don't know.
0: Yeah, whatever you get your hands on. But we on.
1: still do it. It's just good enough. And you have kids showing There are 12 to 15 and 15 to 18 and non-pros and trainers. And you have a People that are now able to do something that they weren't doing before because maybe raining was too expensive for them to own a horse or lease a horse yeah. and pay for training and everything that's around that. And I'm not saying that extreme cowboy takes less training, maybe even more. But it did open up people's eyes towards the, the constant need of working with your horse and building better communication. and Trying to work as a team in opposed to just performing on the highest level you can. because you might do great spins and great stops and great lead changes. but if your horse is going to get into the water pass or through the curtain or jump, and you won't do it good enough, then your spins don't matter. Even a little bit, and you've got to do it fast enough because this is a timed event. Yeah. And the funny thing was that part of the obstacles that we have in the in the extreme cowboy is roping, roping the dummy.
2: hmm
1: And so many people, so many kids, and I'm saying kids, and I'm talking about 12 to 18, but so many people here have never picked a rope in their life. Yeah. So it was funny because we don't have like big shops like Teskes and um, Big Reds and stuff. <laughs> yeah. We have probably three, three shops. Yeah, and they're really small. And they started bringing ropes, especially because of that, because nobody would would buy them before.
0: That's incredible. It's a, it's it's just interesting to hear the difference in 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 two different countries and their approach to it. Because, I mean, obviously you've been to Teskes. There's every single rope that's probably ever produced in every single color, shape, size, lay, everything. I mean, there's hundreds of square feet of wall that are covered in ropes to choose from.
1: I think I was lucky enough to not have my credit card on me when I was in Texas because I walked in and you could hear angels sing. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) exactly. Yeah,
0: you'll you'll walk in wealthy and walk out very poor, but you'll have a lot of gear. Yeah. And plenty of tack.
1: Thank God I can't, you know, carry too much things with me in my suitcases. There's a funny story because when I got back to Israel the first time I was in the States, the guys in the uh how is it called? IRS stopped me and they're looking at me. They say, You have a saddle in your suitcase and I'm I'm looking at the guy and I'm like <laughs> oh, dang, I'd be lucky if I could fit a saddle <laughs> in my suitcase. Yeah, I, wish I had I did. probably two rope holders. Yeah. Yeah, two rope holders and a new bridle. And you're like, oh, okay, you can go now. That's fine. That's funny. And on the second time, they stopped me because my boots were in my suitcase. My boots and my spurs Oh, And my yeah. rope. And they were looking why do you carry this stuff?
0: Yeah. yeah well, People just don't know.
1: <laughs> my they don't know. Yeah.
0: They don't know It's a working tools. Well, it's incredible the difference in, yep. in cultures, and, and I think we'll we'll talk a little bit more about it as we get through your history, because you have traveled to the United States and spent a lot of time mm-hmm. training out here and, and furthering your education, but let's yeah. get into the portion of the show where were you you kind of introduce yourself and, and tell your story and your walk through life and, and how you've been led to the horse.
1: Yeah, so like I said, my name is Ihelle, and... I'll start with a funny story about my name. Like I told you before, about the nickname "Hell Yeah." Oh yeah, this is
0: this is incredible.
1: So, "Yeah in Hebrew it means yeah "Yeah in Hebrew means the light of the person, like the aura or something that will shine. And the actual, the actual word comes from the Bible.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so, they started calling me "Hell Yeah" in in the U.S. I traveled to a few different ranches, and it kind of picked up. No matter where I went. And one of the funny stories is we went to the Legacy of Legends event and they, I walk, like we walk together and we come, Buck comes in, Buck comes in front of us and Buck's my idol. I'll, I'll say my whole story about Buck in a minute there, but Buck's is my idol and they introduce me and they call me Hell Yeah. <laughs> and I, I turned red. I changed five different colors. I'm like, oh no, my name's the Hell. <laughs> and the whole business and everything that I'm and I'm, that I'm working on right now is kind of kind of started because of that. Hell yeah! Because I was the person to say hell no about everything. I was so scared, and everything that I've been through kind of made me be so shut down. So after I came back to Israel, I, I was like, no, I can't do it anymore. I gotta go and you know just live life. Yeah, it's best.
2: hell yeah you
1: want to go climbing (laughs) wall hell (laughs) yeah yeah, i'm gonna do a climbing wall you want me to go up and jump on a bull i'll do it
0: (laughs) it's incredible how you take a a joke in essence a nickname and uh now you've branded it it and it applies to a approach you take to life now i guess huh
1: yeah and if you write it you take my letter, the letters of my name and you kind of just switch them up so it's it's the same letters H E L Y A Yeah, it's all there and the na- the meaning of the word in actually the ancient greek culture is the goddess of the sun which is all like similar to the na- to my name in hebrew yeah. i'm like they nailed it they got it just right
0: that's awesome
1: so yeah what this a funny a story funny so my name is Ihelle. Yeah, and I've been teaching Western writing for about seven years now, since 2011, and I'm a therapeutic writing for, for about five years now, since 2014. And like I said, in Israel, you got to have some sort of certification in order to instruct. You can't just go and teach. And I've been instructing all different kinds of people. And maybe just four-year-olds who wants to ride a pony through at-risk youth and kids and teenagers on the autistic spectrum, people with physical and mental disabilities, many times I can't even tell. And I've been working with, with just a lot of different people, but the people I love the most are at-risk youth because I, I tend to relate to them. One of the groups I worked with was a group of mixed kids from boarding school that came to a ranch that I worked in, like I said, through social services. And one of them, at the first time he saw me, I was 19 years old. By the way, in Israel, you can, you can get certified as a therapeutic lighting instructor when you're 21. And I got certified at 19. I'm always the youngest at what I do. So... He comes across and he looks at me from the other side of the arena, and it was the middle of the year, and I just replaced a different instructor, and he picks up picks up a chair and just looks at me. I'm going to throw it at you. Oh, jeez. Okay. Well, hello. He, you go ahead and do that. Yeah, he looks at me, <laughs> and I'm just standing with five horses in my head. I'm like, okay, you can do that. He looks me in the eyes and he's like, what? You're not going to scream at me? No. And we, we went through it really long and sometimes frustrating process, and the next year he came back with a new group and he looks at me he goes down to the arena and he looks at me and he's like, You remember me I'm like, yeah, I do and he's like, look what i what a, what kind of a man I become like he he was like all cocky and proud of himself and I'm like yeah that's that's a good attitude that's a better attitude yeah. than the last time
2: absolutely, rather like the in the chair thrown at you
1: yeah. Yeah, we had a uh, you know, at the end of the year we had a little party and we said goodbye because this is was this was my last day at that specific ranch and their last day in the project and he comes 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 to me and we sit down and we talk and he says, You're the closest thing I've ever had to a mother Wow. And I started crying. <laughs> yeah, I
0: was gonna say that's gotta yeah, hit close so to this home. This is
1: why I do what I do. Yeah. And those kids that I work with are kids that have been pulled out of their home at the middle of the night because um, their parents got to jail or something like that. So some crazy stories. But I, I haven't said it before. The one thing we gotta remember when when we talk is that here in Israel, when you're when you turn eighteen, you go to the army. Mm-hmm. And that leads me to to my personal side of the story. I I wasn't in the army. I was released three months before I was supposed to to be deployed to the army. They told me that I won't I won't be um because of psychiatric um order. Okay. I have eating disorders since I was 16. I was a chubby kid. Everybody was making fun of and bullying through high school and to junior, you know, everything. I was just the one everybody picked up on. And like I said, we just start with with going to after school classes at some ranches and you just kind of do it as an activity. But most of the kids that really like it would volunteer. So ever since I was 10 years old, I just volunteered. Every ranch I rode in, I, I used to come every day after school and just help around cleaning stalls, feeding horses riding horses when I was older, and this became my whole life. When I was 16, I decided to to change the environment and start showing, so I went to a different ranch, and like I said, I'm not going to say names because maybe someone listens, and I don't want to disrespect anyone by all means. Mm-hmm. And I went to a different ranch, and I started going through a really difficult time with myself, and I was bulimic. Um, which means it's not the ones that don't eat, it's the ones that eat and throw up.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I was bulimic for a really long time there. And right around 2011, my I went to the Western Riding Instructor class and my coach looked at me and she was an amazing lady. I, I called her mom. She looked at me and she said, I know something's wrong. And nobody knew. Nobody knew about it. I was... Hiding it really well, so she looks at me and she says, "You have an eating disorder, right?" And I was showing all around at the time, and she looked at me, looked me right in the eyes and she said, "You're not going to show if you keep on doing like th- keep on going like that, and you will have to tell your parents." So I ended up telling them and started going to therapy, and I kept on showing, of course, but I went through the writing uh, instructor course. In 2011 and we bought our first horse. His name is Tuk, which in English is Cliff. So we bought him and then my, my brother fell in love with him. My brother also rode at the time and I, I was still in pretty bad shape and I was getting close to the date that they were supposed to you know, call me from the army and see where where I belong in the army and where I'm supposed to go. And I ended up being, I was supposed to go be at the, like, highest level of a girl's um, abilities.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I was not supposed to be a spider, but something like that, I had really good profile and everything. hmm and like I said, because of my um, health and mental state, I was released from the army. And it's not a good thing in Israel because people really look down at it. And I was really afraid that people will say, no, she wasn't in the army and I don't want to work with her. It turned out quite fine. And I'm pretty open about everything that I've been through. So that a lot of people understand. And. It was 2012. It was December. I still remember that day. I will never forget it. So it, it was right around Christmas because here it was Hanukkah. And I remember my father calling me. He was with my brother at the ranch. And he's like, there's a horse. Here. you gotta, you got to ride him. You have to ride him. I'm like, okay. And this is how I met my horse. And he is the love of my life. And he's a best thing that ever happened to me and he called me and I'm like, no daddy, I don't want to come, I don't want to do that why, why, Why?" eventually he convinced me, so I got there and this horse was at the ranch because he came there for, they brought him there for a buyer's check for some other girl who showed raining. and she didn't like him and by the time they were supposed to pick him up it was like a week, so he was there and people just You know, we rode him every once in a while, but he was like in the back corner stall. Nobody could see him. He was all alone in the dark and we had our other horse there. So my brother felt really sorry for him. And he started, we had our own food, um, like fancy food or whatever. So my brother started feeding him as well. So he and my father called me and I get to the ranch. I'm like, no, I don't want to ride his horse. That horse, they say he's crazy and he will kill me. And (laughs) Well, he didn't end up killing me because I'm still here.
0: Yeah, I was going to say. I don't
1: know why I have a thing ever since I was young. I don't like big curb beats. I don't like it. I don't know. I've never really had a specific explanation of Mm -hmm. why, but I don't like it. I, I think you can do everything with any kind of beat. I will use them but not all the time. Mm-hmm. And they give me a big bit, and they say, go up on him. And the minute I, I go up on the horse and he was jumping up and down all the way to the arena because he was such a spooky horse. His name today is Cisco. And he was jumping up and down and I get to the arena and I go up on him and before I even put my right leg in the stirrup, he goes off running. Oh no. Like, what's going on? And he wasn't running like a spooky horse. He was like, I gotta do something. I gotta do something. I gotta do something.
0: Yeah, performance anxiety.
1: He was so afraid. I've never seen a horse so frustrated and afraid in my whole life. I've worked with some horses that have, been, that have been abused pretty badly. But something was wrong. And he, he, he reminded me of me. Because he was so scared to disappoint anyone around him. He was like going off, just like, just tell me the number of the raining pattern you want me to run and I will run I'm and gonna I will run, run, run it right and now, yeah. Okay. Relax, relax, dude. You're okay. So I, I was riding him, and there was a trainer at that ranch, and we never got along. I will be honest and say that. He had a tendency of humiliating everybody around him. And I don't like people like that. I don't like people that operate from their ego Mm -hmm. and, you know, hide behind the words and not their actions. Exactly. And he was one of these people. He would go say, oh, I do liberty with horses and I do natural horsemanship. And then he would ride them at 2 a.m. when nobody's at the ranch and we'd come in the morning and the horses are all... They they all had like spur signs on their bellies and bleeding and like what the hell did you do? Yeah. So he was screaming at me for many reasons and I tried to listen to him and I ended up going off the horse, looking my looking at my dad's eyes and my dad grew up with horses as well so he he's kind of the one that pushed me to always be around horses and made sure that ever since I was a baby we had horses around us. So. I look. I looked my dad in the eyes and I said, "I want that horse." I don't know why, but I want that horse. And I was terrified of him. So we we ended up buying Cisco, and we had we had him in the same pen we took. And they're still here with us in our house up until this day. And they're best friends. You can't take one to take to give a like. I can't take Cisco and shower him without him going crazy in his stall. So they're BFFs now. <laughs> and it took me a really long time to get see so nice to people. And I'm and I'm not joking. My brother would go in the sand to feed him and he would just bite him in the leg and throw him in the ground. And my brother is not a small person. Oh jeez. So it's kinda what the hell is going on? And if I if I tie him, he would bite me, he would kick, he would do a lot of things. He just hated people, especially men.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And one day I was like, okay, I, I got to do something. I got to I gotta learn how to work with this horse. And my trainer at the time, who worked at Advent, um introduced me to a hackamore. And I was 17 at the time. So just imagine riding for about 10 years and never knowing what a hackamore is because we don't use it quite often. Mm-hmm. So I started riding him with a hackamore and no spurs, but he was still... He was a really good horse to ride. He was really like, like he said, uh, performance anxiety. He was so anxious when he rode him, but from ground he was the worst. So I started watching videos and I started watching Chris Cox and Ted Pirelli and Buck Brenneman and Ray Hunt and Tom Durance and Mark Rashid and I can keep going for days. So I would, I would just sit down at home and open YouTube and just watch videos. Um, and Chris Cox was probably the first one I found on YouTube because I got to buck because of a movie they showed us in the ranch one rainy day and we couldn't ride so Chris Cox was really the first first horseman that I've ever seen and i I got into the round one day and I was trying to just make him for around and he was he had a thing when he would, He would try to attack me every time I go into the round pen, stand in the middle. He would run at me, ears down, and you know, going at it. Just terribly aggressive. I always had to have someone, yeah, I had to have someone looking from the outside of the round pen in case someone happened, something happens to me. And like I said, I was in a pretty shaky mental state at the time, and my friend was watching from the outside, and I just got into the round pen. And I said no. Today I'm not going out. He's not going to do that. And I sat down on the floor. And he was like, "What the? What are you doing? <laughs> he's going to kill you. No, he's my horse. He's not going to kill me. I'm going to sit down here." And he was running at me. He looked down and he stopped. And then he came over and started licking me. And okay, I think I think we got we got to the bottom of yeah, it. We're, getting we're somewhere. friends now, so yeah, we're getting somewhere. And I. Yeah, well, uh, just just to make it clear, guys, uh, Chris Cox didn't tell me to sit down on the floor. It's not something that I, I saw in any video. I was just, you know, I had my mindset on doing something, and I did.
0: For the safety disclaimer, it's not advised that you sit in front of dangerous horses and wait it out. No. Not the safest
1: practice. Never. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> and from that day on that I sat down on the floor, and it was... You know, like something you see in the movies. Oh, my God, the horse comes to her. And and my father was so excited that my horse started to like me. So I just started working with him and just trying to find a way to communicate with him. And when looking back, and I thought about it today, because you we were going to call, and I said, like, what am I going to say about my horse? And I made every mistake possible on him, Okay. Every time I worked for him, looked like a different video I watched, but definitely not what the trainer meant.
0: You bring up a good point because with the with the advent of social media and YouTube, right, it's great in one regard because we have such great access to so much information. That being said, mm-hmm. you have to be very diligent in which information yeah. you select is credible. But then you have a whole other hurdle. Mm-hmm. I mean, you take the time to educate yourself but, but what you see on the video is very, very difficult to attain in real life because when you work with horses, it, it's a feel, right? How do you teach a feel? How do you yeah. show a feel, right? And that's a huge, huge hurdle
1: exactly. in,
0: in applying horsemanship.
1: Yeah, and, and we got to remember, and I don't think people think about it as much as they probably should because those videos are edited Someone didn't show you all the bad parts yeah. and there will be bad parts. The process. Yeah. It's not just, Oh my God, lunging and settling and it, it looks so good. And you go back and pick your hand up and the horse comes to you in the round. <laughs> and I'm like, how did they do that? How now did five they get to minute. that <laughs> point? Oh my God, I can do it. So no, I couldn't, but I made every mistake possible on him, but, and I don't care. Because he he became my reason to wake up in the morning. I was a I was at my senior year in high school and it was six months after I got him and I said, No, I'm not going to school anymore. And in Israel you don't have SATs but you do have to do some sort of tests and in order to get your um high school diploma. So I ended up doing it in an external program and got my diploma and everything good but I woke up every day at six a m and I went to the ranch till about ten p m and I just learned everything possible and up until this day and I think you said it in in one episode and i and I'm just like you, I'm the most annoying student a teacher can have because yes. I ask why, yes. You tell me to do a shoulder up or a circle or something. Why? I want to know why am yes. I doing that right now? Why is that good for my horse? And I ended up frustrating a lot of trainers, but the ones who, who did have the patience to explain me are the ones that I had the biggest impact on me and helped me the most because they got me to where I am today. And this is, this is also my method while I teach. So going back to the whole personal, so I had I had to work on myself in order to be better for Cisco because every time I got mad or I came to the ranch and I was in a really bad day with myself, he would go at me. He would he was like, "Shake it up, shake it off. You gotta work." Yeah. And up until this day, my brother can't fight him because my brother is really stressy and. He's a really big guy, and I love him. He's great with horses. Don't get me wrong, but specifically my horse, if you're over-emotional and you can't control your feelings, he would show you them. And Bach says, the horse is a mirror to the rider's soul. Just don't be afraid of what you might see. He is that. He's the best mirror I ever had because if I'm having a bad day, he will be angry. And if I'm doing something wrong, he will show me. So we went through a big process, and he taught me a lot. That horse became everything, and I would see something, and I would go try it on him. So, so you might get, you might say I confused him a lot, but we're friends, so it's good. He's still okay, and I ended up showing him in the raining, um, in the green non-pro raining class. And I, I remember that day I walked up with him and I was so proud because he's a big Palomino. He's half Palomino, half paint. He's a pretty horse. And I was walking with him and I'm all proud in my shiny little horse. And people are like, why did you buy this horse? He's crazy. No one has ever finished uh, a pattern on him and he's going to kill you. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. And And I ended up third place. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, I, yeah, I had such a smug on my face for a week. I think now, now week, my whole life. I remember that day, and and people were like, "What? How did you do that?" So, with the help of amazing trainers that have been there and helped me, but this was the whole process with him and exposed me to to a new world and what I really want to do is work with horses. Horses that have problems and got me to know more about myself and horsemanship and this horse became everything because he's the reason that I was so into groundwork and building better communication and it helped me build better communication with myself and the years went by and we we ended up moving a lot, but he moved with us. They both did. Like said, mm-hmm. these two horses are all, always with us, with the family. And at the age of eighteen, um, I had a bad experience with uh, someone who I thought was a good friend of mine who didn't understand the word no. I'm, I'm really not big on saying rape because it was, it was so much more than that, and it was such a bad situation, and um, and it did affect me a lot and got me back to a really bad place, so it took me a really long time to get out of it. But horses always all, were always there. They were always a part of every decision I made, and ever since I was 16, 17, I worked 12 hours a day. I, I don't know what's not working is, I kept on doing everything and working with horses and just kind of buried, buried underneath the surface everything that I've been through, the eating disorder and the experience with that guy. And then my mother had cancer, which was another... You know, kick me while I'm down, won't you? I was
0: going to say, to say you had a full plate is an understatement.
1: Yeah, my mother is a fighter and she's, she's a real trooper and she, she came... Uh, she's she's okay now, and she's healthy, and everyone's good.
0: You know, I want to go back in part of your story. You talk about your yeah. horse and how sensitive your horse was emotionally, and I can very much yeah. relate to that because I myself have a, a Palomino, a big, strong gelding, and he is very, very emotionally <laughs> sensitive. And in one regard, it was difficult for me in the beginning of our journey because I was not good enough for him and I can't even say that I'm good enough now for him. I I couldn't support him emotionally and we had a lot of difficult times in learning each other and communicating with each other. But the horse was an absolute blessing in one regard because, you know, here here there were these hopes and these dreams when when I bought this horse and, and what I wanted to do with it. None of that was relevant once I started to learn horsemanship for the simple fact was that this horse had a whole different set of needs that in my opinion should take more of a priority Mm -hmm. than my own goals of performing and competing. Now, here's where Mm -hmm. I think the horse is a blessing is because this horse has driven me in a path that I never would have traveled before if I had more of a turnkey horse, if that makes sense. And being that he's, he's so emotionally sensitive, it's, it's difficult in one regard because you don't make the progress that you see other people making at the same rate, right? Things are a little bit slower for us and it's a little bit more difficult for us. And, and I think it's slower and more difficult mm-hmm. just because I, I, I'm not that good, right? I, he requires you to be so much more specific and so much more better in your timing and so much more better in your feel to really, really, really gain his trust and, and instill this new pattern in him that it, it it's frustrating because you don't see the progress yet. I think it's incredible because he's driving me to be that much better of a horseman versus me riding a horse that may be a little bit more or less forgiving. So I could be a little bit more sloppy in my cues and my timing and my feel, but because a horse is forgiving, I'll get away with it. Now with my horse, what? I have found that you have to be spot on. You have to be spot on emotionally you have to be spot on with your cues you have to be spot on with your timing and if you're not the horse is going to tell on you and it's 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 been an absolute blessing and and it's driven me in a path and a passion and a profession that I never even would have considered before so when you describe your horse, I very much think of the horse that I handle here in the states and it's incredible yeah. and you start talking about your life experiences, right? And and the bulimia growing yeah. up, and the, and the and the sexual assault that you you recently told us about, and and mother's cancer. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are huge life changing events for people. These are conditions that some people never ever ever recover from. They will live and die on this earth and never be able to to heal from it. So here you are in such an emotionally fragile state. We'll say. Yet your horse seems to have a very, very similar presentation in its life, as far as being very sensitive emotionally, and it's an absolute incredible story that you that you begin to discuss about how how you kind of lean on each other for for your own recoveries, right? He needed you, but you needed him just as much.
1: Yeah. Well, the whole thing that happened it happened like. I had a little break in between and then something else would happen, but I think I've never I've never dealt with anything because I was kind of so wrapped up around working and just learning as much as I can. So I kind of let those things that happened to me be on the sidelines and it made my eating disorder get even worse. And... I think what a lot of people think is, and they connect eating disorder with being like super skinny and unhealthy. And I was never that way. I started working out and, you know, doing some um, weightlifting and things like that. And it took me a really long time to really understand that I need to face all of these problems. And it happened only in the last couple of years. So I had a lot of relapses and going back and forth, going back and forth, in and out, the eating disorder. But I never stopped working. And this is something that a lot of people don't understand. I never stopped. I work 12 hours a day. I can't do without it. This was my safe place, and my horse was my safe place because he he forced me to be better. Because if I was there and I was crying or just depressed, I had to change it. I had to shift the paradigm towards a more positive attitude or train of thought. And I think the biggest thing I've learned from my whole journey with Cisco is that I should never give up on myself. And this is something that took me a really long time to to say because I kind of gave up on, on the things that were important to me in order to work and Teach and just do everything
2: mm-hmm. in order
1: to not think about the problems. Mm-hmm. And it it uh, thinking about horsemanship for me it's a whole different thing because and people would say that they would say that I I talk more fluid and I'm I'm nicer when there's a horse around. So for me, even talking to you on the phone, it's it's difficult because. I'm really not a people person, <laughs> <laughs> so I always have to have a horse around, and and that that might sound weird, but horses just they have always been there, and people don't. People will let you down, and we we have all been through something, and I don't think you need to have such a you know dramatic story or um, traumatizing experience. In order to really be hurt, we all deal with different things in different ways. And like you said, my story might sound big and you know, movie-like story or whatever. But for me, it's just my story. It happened. I can't. Ch- I can't change it. I can only build on it and learn from it. And you know what? Next time, I'll do better. Or I'll find a way to to deal with it better. And this is my perspective today because I can go back through all these years and I'm trying to not talk about it this much because, you know, when you say sexual assault and you say bulimia, people understand and you can kind of guess where I was. Mm -hmm. But for me, the biggest thing is is where I am today. And horses really led me to where I am. And with all that said... I feel like I really need to you know say and maybe someone would would shake their hand in agreement if they listen to that, so I was always going if you if you look at life like like a road so i was I was always driving the lane next to the one I was supposed to
2: mm-hmm.
1: kinda not committing one hundred percent to my dreams and the things I really wanted to do because I was so afraid. Afraid of the responsibility, afraid to fail, afraid of a lot of things and it stopped me in so many ways and it leads me back to, to the last year and this last year was the craziest year ever. Like I said, I was working as a therapist writing instructor and a western writing instructor and I was training kids for shows and youth things for showing me an extreme cowboy. I was doing a lot of things for, for a very long time. And then I decided, okay, I got to make my dream come true. And I got to go to the States. I got to make it happen. So I contacted a few trainers and I ended up going to Wyoming and Idaho and working with some great trainers and horsemen in the cowboys, horse, the horsemanship industry, going with one of them to the Legacy of Legends event. And I had such a great experience on one side, but really humbling experience on the other side because I was never the one to have overconfidence. And, you know, I don't operate with my ego or, or, you know, hide behind my words and make a lot of noise. I really, when I get to situations that I'm not comfortable with, I kind of shy out and I stay quiet and try to, uh, just don't notice me, so I won't do anything awkward or something like that. And I really ended up my my trip to the States was amazing, and I and I'm thankful for every moment there and for the people that had me and you know taught me new things. And um, but I think that what I learned the most is that I know a lot more than what I think. I always tell myself that I don't know enough, or maybe, like said, I'm not good enough for that specific course,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: I need to learn more, and I will never stop learning. But this experience said, okay, you do know enough, but you need to work on that. This was the humbling part, because... They never told me anything that I didn't know before, and I, I said it to one of them, and I'm like, this is what I tell my students all the time, so why can't I do it now? Exactly. And we end up, we end up as trainers or teachers, and we, we get to a point where things are kind of like robotic. We say some things all the time, and uh, we don't actually practice what we say. And it, the biggest part My my teaching way is everything I tell my students, I did or or do myself. I can't tell you something that I've I've never tried. I can't ask you to do that. And if, if I get a new horse or a new client that I have the horse, I will go ride the horse and then help them with that specific horse because you know, a lot of trainers they get caught up with ego and they enter the rounds thinking they know everything, and then the horse looks at them and you no, know, you gotta humble yourself and you gotta stay, you gotta stay realistic because every horse, like every human, is different. And this is the biggest experience I had in the states. Just, just realizing how much I know and how much I really need to learn, and. I got back to Israel, and like I said, I had the hell yeah moment there. <laughs> I, I'm not giving up. And I was. I had a person that I really loved, and he's not part of my life anymore. But he's alive, nothing happened to him, but it was a really you know, disappointing thing because I really hoped that he'd be a part of my journey. He was one of these people that would always make you be the best version of yourself. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of chasing that that person that I was with him. And it was it was great because I got back to Israel and I said, okay, I'm going to be a cowgirl. And I'm not joking. Like really working with cows and riding all day and riding outside and working in the pen and doing everything. You want to guess how many girls in Israel work in, as cowgirls, like cowboys?
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I, I, I'm going to guess they're probably few and far between.
1: Uh, no, I was the only one, apparently, <laughs> the last year. Oh, man. Yep. Yeah, and I have friends who work up north. I live right in the center of Israel, and I have friends who work up north, and they had a bet, and they said, You know what? I don't know any girls who work as cattle, you know, cattle ranchers, cattle operations. We do have some. And then I came around and they're like, okay, so there's one really one. like, you know, there's wife of cowboys and stuff, but it's not like in the States. The wives won't go roping and we don't do branding. Mm-hmm. We just take them all in the pen, do vaccinations and, you know, get out.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's, but even the cowboy and the whole cattle ranchers and everything is a lot different. So, all, all of my story and all of my personal experience led me to going to the States and kind of chasing my dream of, of meeting those great horsemen. And I got to meet Buck and I got to meet Buster Miflari. And the reason I got to meet all of these people is because of one one person in Israel. And his name is Shlomi Raziel. And if you will ask Chris Cox about him, he knows him. And they worked together um, this summer. And he's one of the greatest Horseman that I've I've ever met. He he has his way with horses, and he kind of told me about all of these people, and that's what led me to to going and and really wanting to to pursue that kind of horsemanship and getting to learn more of the um, vakurus and bakuru's, um tradition.
0: I was going to say, I think in listening to yeah. to all of your story, right, your your personal testimony and your history and and how you grew up. I mean, you've you've lived an incredible life. I think it's extremely yeah. noble everything that you've done, right? All of the trauma that you've had to overcome, all of the passion and pursuit in your horsemanship. I mean, traveling halfway across the world just to seek education. It's it's all it's all so commendable. I think there's value in in your testimony. I think you'll be able to help a lot of people. And
2: mm-hmm.
0: and in closing, I like to I like to kind of give guests the opportunity to to sell themselves. So we we talked about, you know, the joke of the hell yeah horsemanship and all that. But do you want to kind of explain your branding and your goals coming up for two thousand and nineteen?
1: Yeah, so like we said before, everything that's going around with with everything being on social media and everything that's out there and the decision of what what kind of way you want to follow and what method suits best for you. So I, I'm building my own brand and it's called Yahelya. Yeah yeah. It's written Y-A-H-E-L-Y-A. It's the combination of my name and the nickname that kind of led me to do all of that. And the goal of what I'm doing is I'm also doing um, some sort of therapy, personal therapy. It's called NLP. And it the goal for... Sorry, oh, my words are going away. Um, the goal with NLP is actually help people set their goals and find better ways to communicate with others and with themselves. And it's kind of the same approach that I have with horses, finding a better way to communicate and understanding why. So... We have a website and it's going to be launched pretty soon. So I have my Instagram account that's working right now and I will, I will put the link as soon as we launch the website in there and the Instagram account go Instagram account goes by hell. Yeah. Like I spelled it. And the goal is to help people get instruction no matter where they are in the world. Um, because we all work with trainers and we all see videos, but we don't have that one person. Or like I feel or, or like I see it, it's really difficult to find the person that will explain you what mm-hmm. to do live on real time and will help you find your way with with horses. And it's not only about horses. My motto is all around the all about the horse, because I believe that The way I live my life and my lifestyle would affect directly on my horsemanship. So whether I just train or eat well or just take care of myself and, like said, learning as much as I can. And then on the other side, working with my horse and actually solving problems. So this is what I do. This is the goal of the website and the brand that I'm trying to build right now. And working with my students and they are the models on my videos most of the time. I'm just kinda trying out to see I'm trying to see how this will work, and this is something I'm taking a little faith here trying to trying to do something that scares me
0: yeah that's where that's where development happens, you know
1: I just want to add something about the way I work with horses because I think it's really important
0: it's all very very valuable stuff,
1: yeah, we gotta understand that horses they're not going to do anything unless they also see the goal, unless they're part of it. Because if if you ask your horse to trot, and working with kids, I I will see that a lot. If you ask your horse to trot and they say, no, he doesn't want to trot, he's lazy, he's not a good horse. So the answer is no. Your horse just don't think it's important enough to waste his energy or their mm-hmm. energy on running right now. So. What I do with most of my students, and like I said, I build on the why. Why is that my goal? Why is that what I need to do right now? And if we find a way to explain it to our horse, then it will be much easier to to build communication and just gain the respect and cooperation because our horse is a part of the process. Our horse is a part of our goal setting. I can't ask. Uh, Tennessee walking horse to go do a reigning pattern is, is a quarter horse so you got to be realistic with the goals that you set yourself and know why why you're setting those specific goals and why you're asking for those specific goals. and I was, I was telling, I told myself this morning, I, I've got to talk about it and I don't want to talk a lot about my personal story because I don't want to sound like, you know, I, I don't want pity, I just want to work with horses because we're here for the horse we're here because those amazing creatures, like, like Winston Churchill said, something about the outside of a horse that's good for the inside of a man, that's just right.
0: Your story, this episode has been the, the exact goal and mission of this podcast. You know, You've been brave enough to share very, yeah. very intimate details of your life. You tell the story of a broken human Mm -hmm. being. None of us are immune to it, right? We've all been affected by stressful, negative situations that are relative to each individual's life, Mm -hmm. right? In one way, shape, or another. You have demonstrated the tenacity and the fortitude and the strength, right? To overcome and constantly seek a way to improve yourself, no matter what state you're in. You know, I feel very fortunate to have the time that we have spent together, I am very, very much looking forward to future conversations with you and and learning of your success and seeing where your horsemanship takes you in 2019. It's been an incredible journey. I am very, very grateful for our time together and, and very much looking forward Thank to you. talking to you down the road.
1: Thank you very much. It was really exciting to do something like that.
0: And we'll talk to you down the road, huh? Yes.
1: Yeah.
0: All right, Yael. You have a good rest of the evening, I guess, for you.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's an evening right now. All thank right. you. Have a good day.
0: Bye bye. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to this episode of Let Freedom Rain Podcast. Again, you can find us on social media under Let Freedom Rain Podcast. If you want to support the growth of this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash let freedom podcast. Again, we thank you, and we'll see you on the next one.